This is the Extravagant Promises Podcast, and I'm your host, Gregory. Tonight we have episode number 27, Casanova was Venetian. So before we get cracking, as they say, a couple housekeeping items. First, this is not an AA meeting. Everybody knows that, but I just want to make sure that I'm not uh, doing anything that would suggest this is an a, a regular AA meeting that can stand in place of an AA meeting. It, it can't. It can only supplement or complement your program or be that candle in the darkness that you need. Or maybe you just want some AA or recovery love, and I'm here to give it, and I'm here to serve. Second, I'm not a mental health professional, and nothing about this should be deemed to be some form of therapeutic, uh, medical, or healthcare sanctioned uh, advice or counsel. I'm just one fellow journeyman on trudging the road of happy destiny and trying to share my experience, strength, and hope. Third, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all our traditions, and I ask that at all times my anonymity and my uh, privacy be protected. I am being very vulnerable by offering a lot of information about myself and doing that as a form of service, and I understand I'm not in the confines of a meeting, but I do ask that those protections be recognized, and I absolutely will protect yours. I will do everything I can to protect your anonymity and privacy. With that said, I do encourage you to reach out to me. You can do so on Instagram, the gram, IG. I don't know what my kids are calling it these days, but um, I can be found at, at Extravagant Promises Podcast. I can also be emailed. I have my own email address now, Gregory B at Extravagant Promises Podcast.com. There will be a website in the offering or offing or it's being made and we'll be getting to that shortly. Fourth and finally, um, this is a uh, free endeavor, meaning I will never charge anyone to be a part of this spiritual and recovery journey of mind and I will never ask for nor accept any kind of remuneration for this podcast it is entirely free. It is not commercial. I, I, I don't know if that hurts my legitimacy or not, but I just want people to know that, you know, I'll never have any kind of a opening dialogue where I ask for money or talk about sponsors or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's absolutely a great idea, especially if you're monetizing your product or your brand or yourself. It's just that that would, in my opinion, kind of get in the way of what I'm trying to do here. Um, there may be in the future some ventures that I uh, dabble in that that have a commercial component to it. I don't know, but um, for now, this is entirely free and not something I would ever accept any kind of payment for because my payment is my service. You know that is the divine spark that keeps me sober. So. Uh, without further ado, let's get to tonight's episode. When I came into the rooms, um, 
And as you know, my name is Gregory. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 19, 2015. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor, and I sponsor other men in the program. And when I came into the rooms, I would often say with the utmost of conviction that I was worthless. I was irredeemable. I was vile. I was dishonest. I was a low life. And, you know, most people, in fact, almost everyone would just kind of look at me and be like, yeah, you know, welcome to the club. Um, and I never really shared more than once or twice why I felt that way and what I had done. And I think this is a good time for me to do that. And, you know, here, here goes. You know, I, um, I have never stolen anything in my life. I have never taken money that I wasn't entitled to have. I've never, I've never stolen money. I've never committed a crime of any significance, certainly. I've used illegal drugs. And um, that's probably the extent of my criminal behavior. Um, most of those drugs are not illegal anymore. Um, but I'm not using that as an excuse. I'm just saying I've never physically, I've been in some fights, but I've never physically harmed someone in a criminal fashion. I've never engaged in any kind of financial fraud or a fraud upon anyone. I've never lied. I've never, I, well, I'm going to get to the line. I've never cheated in this. And I've never committed commercial lies, cheating or stealing. I didn't cheat on exams. I didn't, I've never cut corners in a sporting event to get ahead. You know, on the whole, I've lived a very upstanding life. I've never harmed a client or a customer. I've always put their interests before mine. I've never hit my children. I've never hit a woman. I've never, I've never physically abused anyone. I've never emotionally abused anyone intentionally, for sure. I'm sure that the things I've done have caused emotional harm, though. And I take ownership of that. And this is not me being like, I don't own these things. I own everything. I just want to be crystal clear and absolutely honest. You know, but... On June 6th, 1998, I stood up on a sacred place called an altar. And I made vows before God and before the congregation and before the woman who was pledging herself to be my wife. And I broke those vows. And I broke them repeatedly. And I, this is hard to admit openly, but I, I want to say that I intended to keep the vows, but I knew sitting up there, there was this chill running down my spine that I was committing myself to something that I had no interest in committing. And that was the greatest lie of all.
And in therapy, I called it the big lie for many years. I tried to talk to my therapist who I would go to frequently, but kind of irregularly. And I, you know, I just, uh, we would get into arguments about my marriage. Um, you know, I don't hold any ang animus or, ang or issues with that individual, but you know, it was very clear that I, I was unhappy in my marriage because I didn't want to be in my marriage ever. And I had made this colossal commitment that carried so much weight in my mind and in my family and in my family's family and in my new family, all these things. I just, you know, there was so much wrapped up in it. And I'd like to talk about that today. And I'm not trying to dissociate or, you know, I'm not trying to get around the, 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 the mistake I made or the ownership of it. It was mine and I did it. But, but my Lord, I paid a price for it. I, I paid almost the ultimate price for it. I was so self-loathing and disconnected. And, you know, it was the secret that I kept for 15 years. And I was a liar. You know, I was a liar. And it all started with Casanova. Well, it started before that, but it started with Casanova in Venice. And, you know, it's just, it's so interesting what the world will do to you and what your family will do to you and what you'll do to yourself in order to avoid someone else's discomfort, in order to avoid being impolite. You will literally, there's a story that my father told me who he's a surgeon and he told me about a famous surgeon who was at a dinner with like a hundred famous surgeons and the surgeon who's well known in the world at the time got a piece of meat stuck in his mouth or something in his throat rather than asking for help in front of a hundred men and women who could save his life immediately he went to the bathroom to try to dislodge the the uh, food and he suffocated to death and choked. Think about that. You know what people will do. You know, there's a scene in the in the in the movie, the girl with the dragon tattoo, where he talks about how the girl, one of the one of his victims, the murderer. You know, he know she knows that he's going to do something, but it's like this fear of being impolite. This fear of standing up for yourself, this fear of being honest. You know, you're not being dishonest in a sense of an, a, 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 like you're, you're setting out to lie to someone, but you are lying. But the thing is, is, in, is this fear of, of that will allow you to literally be killed. It will allow you to be spiritually killed. It will allow your soul to wither and die because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And in so doing, you can destroy that human being. You can destroy your family. You can destroy things because you just don't want to tell the motherfucking truth. Think about that.
people pressure you. Oh, this, oh, you can't do, you know, all the resistance and all those things. If you just had the courage to say, no, I don't want this. Please help me. Or I can't do this. Then, you know, and it's amazing that even in the post, you know, as I've talked about on the podcast, I, I, I finally in a drunken blackout state of I don't I wouldn't call it rage. I would just call it just emotional lava. I finally said everything, you know, in this drunken blackout state and you know, even during that process leading up to it, my lawyer, my therapist, all these people that I would talk to and say I've got to get out of this. They would all say it was come nearing the holidays. You gotta wait till after the holidays. You can't do it. You know, it's like this, this, this like keep the secret further. You know, now you're taking plants, keep it further. Lie more. You know, and everybody, even to this day, would say, Don't tell this person the truth that you never loved them like a man should love a woman when they're saying, Will you marry me? Will you love me? I will love you. Not a single day in my life. Did I have that feeling inside me? I've been called a piece of shit. I've been called a faggot. I've been called all kinds of lying, cheating. I've been called vile, evil, all these things. Because um, the notion was you made these promises and then you decided you didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And the thing is, is in my heart, I'm like, yeah, I made, I said those words, but there was never a day that I wanted to be in that. And I've never shared that publicly in any fashion. I've barely even said that in the rooms. I remember one guy was like, what's the big secret? What's the big deal? What'd you do? Did you kill somebody? And I was like, no, you know. Um, you, what'd you do? Drunk driving? You hit and run? What, you know, <laughs> you steal from a bank? You got millions of dollars? You know, no. It's like, so you didn't love your wife? That That's it? You almost killed yourself over that, you know, and it, and it's like, yeah. So why Casanova? Why Venetian? Why Venice? Um. Yeah. So you know, I. I um, you know, there was a time in my life when I was in love. And it was young. I was like puppy love, you know, and I was in love with a young woman who was, um, you know, in college with me. And I would have thrown my entire life away for her. I was just smitten. And I remember when we parted ways on in June or late May or whatever after our first year and we were not going to be together for the summer and I had said you know hey if you want to see other people um it's cool you know let's try to figure this out and she was like I love you I don't want to see any other people well she was lying to me and she was cheating on me and she had a boyfriend back in Texas and you know and it was it was interesting because at the same time my parents pretty much despised this young woman she was just a kid i was just a kid and they didn't know any of this and they just you know would my mother would call her princess blondie and make fun you know just ridicule her 
tell me what a dumbass I was. My dad, it was the first time I heard the word pussy whipped because my brother on a vacation said, you know, dad says you're pussy whipped, you know, and it was like, yeah, I was, but I was, I was, I was dying. I mean, I was in love, you know, and my parents were shitting on me. Everybody was telling me what a lousy kid I was, you know, and then I just remember I cried when we parted ways and I was driving south from Little Rock, Arkansas down to Louisiana and she was driving on to Texas and I just remember crying that whole, it's like a one hour drive, two hour drive, Pine Bluff, all this place you go through, I think, I can't even remember to be honest with you. All I know is that I cried and I cried like from the guts, you know, crying. You know, that 18-year-old, my life isn't going to get any better crying, you know. like, And, you know, people can laugh at it. I can laugh at it. But, you know, everybody ought to feel that kind of heart heartache and that kind of love and longing for someone at least once in their life. So that kind of gives you an idea. It's like for a number of years, I, I had relationships, some of them good, some of them bad. Um, that were, you know, some, some pretty amazing women, honestly. One of them was a complete freaking psychopath who clawed my face and cut me. Did I just, it was abusive and all, but aside from her, um, most of them were amazing. I mean, intelligent, beautiful, go-getters, you know, just love, just awesome. And my mother and, and my mother mainly, my, you know, my father too would ridicule them, would make it difficult, would, would act inappropriately in family gatherings and things. And, and it really just kind of, you know, it kind of was one of those things where I was going through a lot of hard times. I was trying to figure my life out. I was a young professional. And then I met a person who was very attractive and had the right pedigree and had a ton in common with me. Had literally, If you could list a thousand attributes, they were all there. Or maybe 998 of them. But those two at the top that weren't there, they were the most important. You know, there was a lack of something between us. Really, in my heart, it was like this is an amazing. You you can whatever. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to denigrate my relationship or what I put into it. Also, by by making metaphors or saying metaphors or analogies that are not as grave or serious as they should be. But the point is that. You know, this was the first person that my parents truly embraced, and they were about it. And this was the one, and you need to lock this down. And this person, I'm not going to ever speak her name. I don't want to, I don't want anybody to know who it was um, because I want to protect her privacy, but also. She has since behaved in ways that are so atrocious uh, and really can't be reconciled with heartbreak or 
addiction or whatever, just so ruthless and cunning and vicious and outrageously poor decisions and behaviors that um, design with nothing more than to hurt and destroy me that I, 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 don't, I don't want that person's name spoken. But I have to get this out. I have to get this out. You know, I'm sitting here about a hundred yards as the crow flies from a place called Harry's Bar. And I love Harry's Bar. And I remember, you know, it's hard for me to think about, you know, when I came in the rooms, a big part of my problem with alcohol was the romance of alcohol, the romance. And I've talked about this on the podcast in earlier episodes, the romance, you know, I'm a romantic, I'm a man of letters and writings and, and, and I, and memory and movies and, and quotes and things. And the romance of that first martini that I had at Harry's bar, they call it a Montgomery because it's, you know, very low vermouth and a lot of gin or vodka. And, um, and I'm not even going to look, this is a recovery podcast. I'm not going to sit and debate gin versus martini, vodka martinis. Um, but what I am going to say is that there was just something about the way they froze those glasses and it, and they froze the liquid in such a way that it was like, it hit your mouth in a way that nothing's ever hit my mouth. And I could, I felt like everything was right in the world when the, when, the, when I drank that, that they had these cool glasses. And I remember drinking one in 1995 with my mother, we came here and we were staying at the Danielli and we were going to a big charity event that week called Save Venice. And it was going to be, black tie and white tie and balls and gallus and the princess of this and the, you know, count of that, the count of no account, the, you know, the this and that. And, and, uh, and I was a drunk playboy at the time, you know, and two years later I was sitting there with this beautiful young woman who was absolutely smitten with me and what was not to love, you know, I was, I mean, let's, I'll, I'll just say it, you know, I, I, I God, I, I hate even talking like this because it sounds so fucking douchey and self-absorbed and it's not. I hate myself. I have hated myself forever. I was the lowest dung on the bottom of the ocean. So believe me, ladies and gentlemen, when I say these things, it's not like, oh yeah, this is me. But, you know, the truth is if you can look at it objectively, you know, I was tall, good-looking, advanced degrees. I had my own business. I was a professional. I had a family that had resources. You know, what's not to love? I was generous. I was kind. I was fun. I would, you know, take you... You know, we were getting engaged in fucking Venice, for, for God's sakes, and I was putting a, you know, giant engagement ring with a diamond from my mother and a diamond from my grandmother and a diamond from my great-grandmother, you know, and and there was going to be this week of all these charity events and all these things and ball gowns and stuff, you know, what's not to love? What's not to love? 
You know that, but the thing is, is from my perspective, I'd been raised to be, to believe that I was such a low life, that I was so unworthy of love, that I was so unworthy of happiness, that I would never have it, I would never be secure. My mother used to call me Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman, even when I was like seventeen. You know, I'm captain of a varsity sport in an elite school with athletes who are going to the Olympics and things like that, and I'm Willie Loman. I'm beaten, you know, repeatedly about the face on my graduation day. You know, I'm Willie Loman. So, you know, the notion that you're going to sit here when someone says she loves you, she is so in love with you, you have got to, you cannot turn your back on this. Who was I to say no? You know, and then, of course, in the run-up to this, this is in August of 2007, uh, excuse me, 1997, in the run-up to it, you know, the intensity of things had got... We'd been dating for a little less than a year, maybe a year. And this person moved down to Washington, D.C., where I was living. I had bought these cool-as-hell little little miniature houses in Georgetown that were so amazing, and I loved them. And immediately she she was like, "I, you know, this isn't enough. This isn't big enough. It isn't what I want. You know, and she hated D.C. because she we would run in, according to her, we were always running into my old girlfriends in flames because I had been a playboy, and this was so humiliating, and I wasn't, wasn't going to take it. And, um, you know, that was the back, the underside, you know. So that summer, you know, there were certain alcoholic behaviors that I probably should have picked up on and certain things, you know, um, big, big, you know, ball that we were at in Georgetown, a social event at the Italian ambassador's event. You know, she got drunk. She didn't eat seafood. That was one of her things. She didn't eat seafood. And it was like I it was like having a child as your as your lover. You know, you you and I've had a number of people in my life like this. It's like, what in when did I become the motherfucking, you know, airbag for everybody? You know, guy I was practicing law with, you know, we'd have a firm well, I guess that's out. I'm well. I've said I'm, I'm a lawyer, you know. But anyway, I'm you know like God was practicing law with I had my own firm in D.C. and it was like you know I'd have to be like, hey, bro, we, you know, we got to get you fed before we go to our firm party because he'd get so drunk he would pass out. I was we were sitting there talking to a congressman, and he starts teetering back and forth, and his fiance didn't give a shit, didn't look at, didn't care. I had to walk over, put my arm around him, and boom, he collapses into my arm. Passes out at a professional firm Christmas party. You know, we got to rush him over to the table, get some coffee. Get You know, he's like, I'm mumbling to himself. Totally inappropriate. And then, you know, here's my girlfriend slash lover slash soon-to-be fiance. And it's the same thing. I have to be like, have you eaten before we go to this party? Let's get some food in you. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I've 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 made so I've tried so hard to get her connected to the youth group of this really high society event, you know, and and to be on the junior committee and things so she could make friends and have other girlfriends in town, you know. But she put zero effort into it. Um, wouldn't go to any of the stuff. She was a New England blue blood, and you know, just anyway. Now I sound really bitter and resentful. I got to watch myself. I'm going to have to make some amends or, you know, call my sponsor after this. But anyway, you know, so we go to this, it was called the, it was called the, uh, what was it called? It was called the Opera Ball in the Italian ambassador's home. You can see I have a thing about Italians and opera and all that. But anyway, and it was in 
DC, and it was very hoity-toity, you know, and getting on the, being, getting invited was a big deal, but being, like, on the committee was an even bigger deal, and I'd managed to do that, and I got her on the committee so she could have a social life, and she didn't do anything, and anyways, we get, we, we go there, we're drinking, we get to the dinner beforehand with all these other young adults, you know, who are putatively potential friends, you know, whatever, but, um, and she looks at the, at the menu and says, it's all seafood. And, and I was like, okay, you knew, you knew what the menu was going to be, you know? And, and, um, and I said, look, let's get them to make a bowl of pasta for you before we go. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's a fucking Italian ambassador's home or something. I'm sure they have pasta here, not to be too stereotypical, but, uh, no, 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 no. So she gets drunk. So we're at the thing. I remember my buddy and I were smoking some Cuban cigars, and she goes, "Give me one. Give me, give me yours." And what I said, "No, no." She goes, "I want to take a puff." I said, and I looked at her. And I said, "Do not inhale that cigar. Do not do this. You know, you're gonna get sick. Please." And she takes a big drag on it because she was a smoker at the time, like smoked cigarettes. And she lets, you know how that little move that they do where they let the smoke kind of come out of their mouth and then they inhale it? And she did that right, just staring me in the eyes. And she starts telling me how she, you know, how pissed off she is because we're not engaged yet. And her, she had moved down. We were just starting to live together. I had bought her a house next door so that there would be more room in our tiny little home, in this tiny little home that I loved so much, but also so that her dad could have the, well, she doesn't live to, you know, this kind of fiction. And she was bitching about how how she, um, you know, we weren't engaged and it was, you know, this wasn't right. And and um, and uh, and then she got drunk and she said a lot of things, including that her father didn't trust me and didn't like me or something like that. And she told her not to trust me and not to do this. And she grabbed, and I was like, please, let's get out of here. And I was taking her out of there. And she grabbed my camera because we brought a camera. We had mass. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And she smashed it on the ground. Now, um, you might be wondering, <laughs> kind of like with my, I had been engaged once before. And that was the woman that I said was a psychopath. Um, you know, we were, I think it was either, it might have been before or after we got engaged. I don't remember. It was right around the same time, a um, couple years earlier. When I say the same time, I meant this woman and I were getting engaged and this event happened, this incident occurred. It's very simple. It's, it's, it's interesting. And, and you wonder why I get these, you know, very stereotype, chauvinistic, misogynistic type phrases in my head because it's like my history with women is not good. It is not good. And, you know, I was abused by a woman. I was physically abused for the better part of 20 plus years. I was emotionally abused. I was humiliated, you know, and somehow I managed to pick women and a few of them. Some of them were amazing and awesome. And some of them were, you know, they were good at figuring out how to get in underneath the the, the defenses and how to set up shop and how to get what they wanted. And this one woman... You know, she was a lawyer also, and she was. I was living in D.C., and she was still working for a federal judge, and we were date long distance dating, and it was. You know, she was going to have to move up there, and she was at a job interview, and that's stressful and whatever. But they loved her, and they were going to give her a job. I had introduced her to the firm, everything, and we were walking to this sushi restaurant down in the um, 
in the harbor in Georgetown. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like the only sushi restaurant around in that area. And it was really good. And we were walking there and like this good looking blonde girl goes walking by. And I'm sure I kind of looked at her or, you know, I, I glance. I'm, I'm not the kind of guy. I do not cat call. I do not give eyes. I don't do that shit. I'm, I, I really try to be a gentleman. But I'm sure I looked at this person. I don't. I didn't turn my head to do anything. And man, this woman, my soon-to-be fiance, fiance, I don't even know, freaked out on me. And we're sitting in. Okay, yeah, yeah. Actually, we were engaged. Um, and that's a whole other story about how we got engaged. I mean, and it just tells you what kind of psycho am I that I would agree to this. But anyway, she because I remember we were engaged because she pulled her engagement ring off. I mean, we're still fighting about it in the restaurant. I'm like, no, 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 I wasn't doing anything. I didn't say anything. I wasn't looking. I was just noticing who's around me, you know. And she's people are looking at us in the restaurant. She pulls the engage the wedding engagement ring off, big two diamonds and a big sa- uh, two sapphires and a big diamond. No, two. I don't remember. Anyway, it was a big fancy ring. Anyway, she pulls it off, throws it at me. Then I'm like, please don't do this. She, you know, she. She goes, come here. I lean my face forward. She digs her nails in right next to my, um, let's see, she's right-handed, so it would have been the left side of my um, of my face, right by my eye, and she digs her nails in, and she drags them down as hard as she can down my face, leaving a scar or leaving a cut, like a nail, like a cat scratch down my face. Yeah, that's fucked up. Anyway, that was like two years, three, two, yeah, it was a couple years before this anyway. <laughs> Anyway, and so, you know, you might say, like, well, here you got this girlfriend who smashes your camera and is just being so difficult. You know, it doesn't sound like she's so perfect. Well, I didn't, I, you know, that was that was the thing. And there were other issues. You know, I, I was not sexually attracted to this person. Um, I had no intimate desires with her. Uh, when we, and this is probably way too much information, but, you know, I couldn't, perform sexually unless it was like I took I started having to take Viagra I started having to like you know drink and watch pornography to be intimate it was horrible um and it wasn't because she I mean I, I am painting her to be not such a great person but maybe that was it I don't know I just I just wasn't attracted I you know but you got to remember I'm a low life I'm Willie Loman I don't deserve anything and so, you know, my mom is sitting there saying, like, this person loves you. She's checked all the boxes. We approve. You're going to do this. And I was like, if you can't beat them, join them. You know, we'll help you with a house. We'll have, you know, all this stuff, da 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 you know. And I'm like, okay. So I got the big society New England wedding. And, and, I'll, and I'll say, you know, in all honesty, this, I don't know if people are going to hate me for this or love me for this or spit on me or have contempt for me about this but you know I there's a there's a there's a there's a F Scott Fitzgerald story called Winter Dreams that talks about um I, you know what I'll save that for another podcast and my whole society wedding talk and F Scott Fitzgerald on Winter Dreams and you know where just all these things but back to the story so I'm sitting at Harry's bar it's August of, it's like right around the, it was like the day that Princess Diana died. Um, so whatever day that was, that's the day it was in 1997. Um, and the news was a buzz here in Europe um, because, you know, Princess Diana, Lady Diana, 
whatever had gotten killed. And there were royals at this charity event. So they all had to make a big deal about having to leave and doing all that. And yeah, that kind of environment. Anyway, so I'm sitting at Harry's bar. I said, listen, before everything kicks off, we need to go to lunch, just the two of us. You know, and I'd made this big production about how we weren't getting engaged in Venice. I couldn't bring the ring to Venice. The insurance wouldn't work, all this stuff. And that's, you know, it's a big surprise. A week before then, I'd taken her father out to dinner in um, Harry Cipriani restaurant in New York. And I I called the maitre d'. No, I I sat with him. I said, in a week, I'm going to be sitting at Harry's Bar in Venice, my favorite place in the whole entire world where Hemingway ate. It's just so romantic, you know. I'm gonna be sitting there. I'm gonna ask your daughter's hand in marriage. I'd like your permission. Here's the ring, you know. I, I it would make, I would, I would, I would really appreciate your permission to do so. And he was. That's another story. Is it was interesting. He said, "Well, I'm thrilled," or something like that. You know, as long as she's happy, I'm happy. I mean, that was about it. As long as she's happy, I'm happy. That was what he said to me. I don't remember the thrilled part necessarily. He liked using that word, like, well, I'm thrilled, you know. But he, he just said, as long as she's happy, I'm happy. He didn't say a single thing about me. He didn't say a thing, single thing about our marriage or how to have a good wedding or marriage or anything like that. And then he started telling me about these women at the bar and how they were, quote, players. And, you know, we should check them out. Uh, classy. Anyway, so uh, fast forward a week. You know, I had been engaged um, to the face-cutting ring thrower, you know, years before. And the way we had gotten engaged was actually horrible and had, you know. So I knew, like, okay, you got to give her a story that she can tell all her friends. And, you know, you got to have this big production and make all these things. So here we are. We're in freaking Venice, Italy. We're at Harry's Bar, the most, you know, the most classic storied, you know, exclusive restaurant in the world, um, you know, sitting at this prime table. I mean, freaking Harry Cipriani himself or Adigo Cipriani is like walking around. We're talking to him beforehand. And, you know, I, 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 I say to her, you know, and one of the things um, that, you know, she really had a problem with was my past. So, you know, before I get too far afield on that, you know, I do want to make sure I'm being empathetic in the sense of, um, you know, I, I, I was 30 years old or right about there, 29, 30. And, you know, I had had my fair share of romances and relationships and, um, you know, that's just, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there and a lot we can get into and we will get into over the episodes and all. But um, so I can, I can understand how, you know, if, if every time I went to, if, if I was going around in society and there was a guy at every cocktail party who had been with my fiance naked or had seen my fiance naked kind of thing, um, you know, I might, and, and it was a different guy every time or something like that. I, I might, you know, it might bum me out. It probably would. Um, but 
you know, that's something that it, it's, it, you, you can, you can kind of, you can, you can, <laughs> you can't make somebody n not have that past, you know, unless you're just like, okay, I want you to lie about this and I don't ever want to run in. And so, so that, that, that kind of showed a, a schism where it was like, first of all, that's an extreme example that, uh, you know, it wasn't every cocktail party or anything like that. But, um, I mean, there were a couple instances where we'd go walking into a known watering hole and I'd be like, let's get out of here. You know, some psycho from the past or something is in there and not going to be a good scene. You know, who's, who isn't going to have that kind of situation in, in life, you know, unless you just, you know, do what we did, which is like up and move, you know, leave a place you were happy because you want to start life fresh, you know, because this person doesn't like you, doesn't like your past wants the image of you, you know, and all, you know, be a good boy kind of thing. So, um, but, but one of the things that I have a problem with is telling stories and I tell a lot of stories. They're not stories in the sense of being false. They're just stories and anecdotes about my past. And I had a lot, a kind of a bad habit back in the day of telling stories about my old relationships, mostly because they were either funny or things I had done or whatever, but mostly also because they were bad relationships or bad situations that had really bummed me out or had hurt me, and I didn't want those things to happen again. Well, my fiance, um, you know, uh, did not appreciate those, and she got real upset about it, and it was kind of one of those, don't you ever, if you, you know, so, um, you know, so, so we've got this backdrop, and you know, we're going to Venice, we're going to this charity event, there are at least two, maybe more women who were, I was, there are a lot of people, mainly women who I was very close with, friends and lovers with, who were involved in this event, um, one of whom, two of whom I had been intimate with, one of whom I had kind of been in love with, you know, and, um, and very much in love with. And it didn't really work out, and it was kind of, you know, whatever. But my fiancé, soon-to-be fiancé, knew all about that. And, um, you know, it was one of those, you know, anyway. So we're at, we're going to Harry's Bar, and I really hope I'm not pissing everyone off or losing, you know, steam, but this is kind of like, this is the backdrop on the moments of, at which I kind of crossed the Rubicon and made the biggest, single biggest mistake of my life. And, um, and, and, you know, did good things come out of it? Yes, absolutely. The two things that came out of this marriage were my two daughters, who I absolutely love. I've never loved anything like I love them. And I would I knew from the moment they were born, I would throw myself down and die for them, and I still feel that way. I've never hit them. I've never hurt them. I would I would give them everything I have because I worship them. I love them so much. And I know it's a little weird to say you worship your kids. I just love them. They're great. Um, back to the book. So, um, well, back, back to the back to the book. I, other than my kids... Yeah, we built a life together. I built the life, you know, um, but there's not a lot else that I can point to in that marriage that I feel good about. It was um, a partnership. It was, I was an ATM machine. I was the show pony that you drag out, you know, to events. You know, I was the, you know, it just, it, there was, there was, it was 
cold, dead, lifeless, loveless in arrangement. And it um, became something that drove me to a deep state of alcoholic self-immolation and pro contributed to my wife's alcoholism and self-immolation and um, nearly killed both of us. Back to the book, um, at Harry's Bar, and I'm like, you got to make it a good one. You know, like that scene in uh, Hoosiers where they're like, make it a good one, strap. You know, well, I'm strap, and I'm like, I got to make it a good one. So, you know, I know I'm like, you got to have a story. You got to give her a story. Not that it fucking matters. Not that you feel anything at all. But I am a good, you know, now that my little thing is out, I'm a lawyer. You know, I'm a good trial lawyer. I'm a good storyteller. Uh, I'm good at acting and making people believe certain things. You know, I think. Maybe not. Who knows? That's what I think. And so I was like, you got to give her a story. Not because you feel it inside, but because this way she can go to all her dipshit friends and all her dipshit, you know, bullshit relatives, and she can sit there and be like, oh, look, and look at my gigantic ring, and listen to this story. It's so great. Isn't he the best? I hooked a good one, you know, like, oh, yeah, and everybody can be envious of you and all this stuff because you you landed the whale, you know, so to speak. Um. And, and of course, inside me, I'm like, I have to do this because I'm a lowlife. I'm worthless. I'm Willie Loman. I'm not able to advocate for myself. So I was like, if you don't want to be in trouble, if you don't want to be in trouble with your parents, with, your, with people, with your soon-to-be fiancé, you need to do this right. So I... Um, I know she's going to be, she's worried about seeing my old girlfriends or people I've been, whatever. I don't know. I know she pissed off about me all the time about that. So I was like, all right, I'll kind of lure her in on this. And so I said this story. I said, you know, hey, um, did you know that Casanova was Venetian? And she said, no, I didn't. And you could tell she immediately thought I was going to start talking about all my romantic and physical or sexual conquests in Venice or elsewhere. And um, and I was like, okay, cool, hook, hook, line, and sinker, but you know, fish on. And um, I said, well, you know, everybody thinks that Casanova was seeking out um, to conquer women and conquer uh, things and, and all this and. And she was looking around the restaurant, not really paying attention. And she was like, oh, really? I said, yeah, but he wasn't really looking to conquer a woman. And I said, he was actually looking for the perfect woman. And she turned and said, well, did he find her? And I swear to God, that's what she said. Did he find her? And at this point, I had pulled out the ring and I moved over to this. We were at a two little top table at this perfect seat in the perfect restaurant. The sun was coming through off the lagoon and I got down on one knee. I said, I don't know, but I did. Will you marry me? And she started crying and turned out that there was a, not a fraternity brother, but a buddy of mine from college was like, 
two tables away. I didn't even recognize him at the time. I didn't even notice him at first. And then he's like, did you just get engaged? I was like, yeah, you know, and oh my God, everybody, you're the best. You finally did right. You got a good one. She, she doesn't deserve you. No, you don't deserve her. You don't deserve her. Oh my God. What, you know, um, and, uh, and that was that, you know, and Casanova was Venetian and I was like, okay, you've done it now. Um, you've made everybody happy and you've got this great girl who everybody thinks is great and everybody tells you is really wonderful and you've checked all the boxes and you're going to get your F. Scott Fitzgerald winter dreams wedding. You're going to get all the things that you wanted, except this person is not the one for you. You guys have some significant incompatibilities in that top two points. And um, she probably knows it. But she's so obsessed with all of those 998 other items. And, you know, being 24 or 25 or I think she was 26 when we got married, but 25. 25 years old is so young. And it's like, boom, I got the whale. Now I'll look at all my other friends, you know, and, and women compete with each other over that shit. Men are never, I've never met a man who's like, why aren't you married yet? I mean, granted, society is like, you're 40 and you're not married, you must be gay or some, something like that back in the day. But, you know, men don't look at another man and go, I'm better than you because I'm married <laughs> or, or you're better than me because you're married. Men look at a, a man and go like, I'm feeling bad for you, dude. You know, at least that's how I looked at it. You got fucking sucked into this bullshit too. Anyway, so, you know, but women, at least the women I've been associated with, you know, there's so much value baked into whether a man has put a ring on your finger and has and has said, you're the one and I'm going to commit all these resources and, and stick my head into this oven for you. And, um, it's just a horrible institution. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm getting way off base here. But um, I just needed to come clean about this and be like, that was the secret. That was it. That was the dark, deep thing that I was like, I'm about to, I have asked a person to marry me. And I mean, within like six hours, maybe maybe 12 hours, we had Peter Duchin lined up to pay it, play at our wedding. Look him up. You know, uh, we were, I mean, it was like, it boom, the date was set. Um I don't know how they did that. The country club, the big fancy country club up north was 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 arranged. All that stuff within a day. I mean, I don't even know how they had they must have they they obviously had had it all figured out in advance. But uh you know, that's that. And um I ended up living the next 20 years of my life in a mild state of fever and loneliness and disconnection and self-abuse because I made the single biggest mistake of my life. And I, 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 and that was when that lie was created. Yes, I love you. Yes, I will love no other. All these things. I wasn't some dipshit douchebag asshole who's just like, I want to get some strange, you know, and I want to go down to the bar and hook up. You know, it was like, there was just this both, number one, this numbness and this thing like, I am not this person. Like, it, it was like, almost like what they say about sociopaths. You have this dissociation, they call it. And it's like, you see yourself in a third person and you're just like, looking through your own eyes you can see your nose and it's weird like you're just not you're like who is this I, I, I this is not my beautiful life this is not my beautiful house um 
Their little talking heads. Anyway, but there was also just this like, you know, this self-disgust that I felt because I knew, you know, it, and, and the best thing I can attribute this to, and I hope somebody out there can, can feel this. Not, I, I don't want anybody to feel it. I don't want anybody to, to, to like live this, but I'm saying I hope someone can understand it and not judge me by the analogy or the metaphor. But, you know, the best thing I, I would tell my therapist, I was like, it was like being gay. You know, like you're, you're going through all the motions, you got all the things, but inside, deep inside, you're a homosexual man and you know that you want to be with a man, but it's like you find being, you know, you, you, you hate it, you think it's disgusting, you know that God has told you you're an abomination, all these kinds of things that are fucked up and wrong, but you're on this, you're on this pedestal and you're like, okay, God, I promise to never betray this woman. I promise to love only her, even though I don't even love her today. You know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it work, you know, and, and, and then you stray because you're going to, you know, you're drunk and you're just lonely or you have somebody there you do love and you wake up and you're like, never again, never again. I'm just, you know, like you total piece of shit, you know, and, all it would have taken was for me to say, you know, I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of someone loving me for me. Warts and all, wounds and all, history and all. I don't have to be something I'm not in order to, to make you happy. You know, I could be, I could have a past. And if you don't like it, you, then let's not get married. You know, within three months of getting married, I had left the job that I was in, the firm that I'd started in Georgetown, the business I'd built. I'd left my friends. I had left my home. I'd sold my houses. I'd bought a new house in a whole new state where I wasn't from, where I didn't live, you know, and I built a life there because that was what she was like, I want to be there, you know? And I think it was a little bit of a, a jump for her too. And we're starting fresh and doing all that. But it was like, I, I remember when we selected, I told her, hey, I don't want to start our marriage somewhere where you're not happy. And, you know, that ain't a marriage. Yes, that's the way you should do it with a marriage. You should both be like, let's do this together. But, you know, because I'm such a low life, because I'm so worthless, I didn't deserve to advocate for myself. I didn't deserve to say, hey, I don't want it. I don't want that. I don't want this. You know, I was a young man. I had a whole life and a whole future ahead of me. And I, I, I took the better part of my life, you know, a prison sentence of my own making, of, in my own walls. And so, you know, when you hear me talk about, uh, I, I was so dastardly, I was vile. I wasn't any of those things, you know. I was, I, yes, I, may, I kept a secret. And that dark pit sucked my soul out. And that's why I say Casanova was Venetian. That's why I'm back here to walk around and be like, I'm here alone to find this city and find, you know, find, you know, in the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, going to find what still remains. 
song called The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always, always, always materialize if we work for them. God, please forgive me for my ultimate sin of lying to you, to the congregation, to my betrothed, on my vows, for lying to myself that I could make it somehow, that I could make it work somehow, that I could pull it off somehow. I knew I couldn't. I wish I had the courage to say that I couldn't. I was weak. I was scared. I was frightened. I was lowly. I was drunk. I was nothing. Please shine your light on me of forgiveness. Please forgive. Please forgive those and, and learn and, and help people who have made that same mistake learn to forgive themselves as you have helped me to forgive myself. Amen.